The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Okay, thanks. All right, hello. Uh, my name is Ikan. Uh, I'm one of the covenant partners here. Uh, so just to start off by saying, if you are uh, first time here, second time, you're new, uh, welcome. We're very glad to have you. I hope that you take something away from from this service that's helpful and, and provokes your mind a little bit. Okay, so um, I, it's just such a privilege to be here and to just, I treat this kind of like a family time, gathering around the Bible together, um, just learning from the Word. Um, and it's a real privilege to lead it. Now, uh, before we go into today's text, I think it's worth taking a little bit of time uh, to look at where we've been uh, before this, because um, if, you were la- if you were here last week, you have remembered that we kind of ended at Matthew chapter 4, like the end of Matthew chapter 4. And today, uh, we, we're starting at Matthew chapter 8. This is kind of a big jump, so what, what happened, right? Um, so let me just explain, if you're new to this church, what we did as we, we covered chapters 5 to 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as a separate sermon series before we started the book of Matthew. And so we're not going to go through it again, we're just going to skip over it. Um, but what that does mean is because there's a gap, I'm going to take a bit of time to uh, help us kind of reconnect the flow from Matthew 4 uh, all the way to Matthew 8. All right, so what did we see last week from Carl? Uh, Carl spoke about how Jesus gives hope and rest and this idea that Jesus achieves what God's people failed to do, right? And so we ended with this, uh, this short passage at the end of chapter 4 about Jesus beginning to heal, and then he goes up the mountain and he spends three chapters worth teaching, right? So that's where we've been. Um, and so what did Jesus say uh, in chapters 5 to 7? Uh, he gave us the Beatitudes famously in chapter 5, and then he goes on to talk about, you know, his kingdom, what it'll look like, and he talks about how his kingdom citizens will act, how they'll behave. Uh, And so he's giving us a picture of what this new kingdom will look like. Uh, He addresses everything from anger to divorce, uh, making oaths. I don't know how many of us made oaths the last time, maybe bought a house recently, I don't know. Uh, Charity and judging others. Uh, Lots of things have been misunderstood over time, um, but we learned what it really meant. Okay, so you notice that this morning, Adam actually read from the end of chapter 7, and that was just to remind us of the context from which we're coming from, right? Jesus has just finished his Sermon on the Mount, and he's coming down the mountain, uh, and there's, again, there's a sense of like, oh, so what's he going to do, right? What else are we going to see about who Jesus is? Um, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to learn about who Jesus is, uh, who the person of Jesus is, more about him today. All right, so let me just uh, pray for us, and then we'll go into the text. Father, I thank you um, that you brought us here, uh, that we can learn together. I thank you that you've given us your spirit to learn uh, from your word, that he inspired, that you've inspired. Um, I pray that we will come with open hearts this morning, um, ready to learn. Uh, And I pray that we would see how Jesus is this compassionate son of God and son of man, who invites us into communion with Him, invites us to trust Him with joy, with confidence. Um, I pray that you would change our hearts this morning where we need changing. And those of us who uh, do not understand who Jesus is, maybe we've had questions that we would come, maybe with better questions out of today or having found the answers we were looking for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
uh, Confucius, Sun Tzu, Mahatma Gandhi, Plato, Machiavelli, Pascal, Ibn Khaldun al-Farabi, Philippa Foote, Hannah Ardent. Perhaps some of these names you recognize. Maybe some of them you don't. Uh, they are widely acknowledged to be some of the greatest thinkers and teachers in human history. Right? They've come up with ideas, concepts, and arguments. And even though most of them are dead and rotting by now, uh, many of us who are alive and breathing still continue to learn from them. Um, and so the question is, should we put Jesus in the same category? And as we think about the past few chapters, uh, we recall, right, sure, at the end of chapter 4, uh, Jesus did some miracles at the end, but really, Matthew only spent about two verses talking about miracles. And he goes on to record, like we said, three entire chapters of Jesus' teaching. So perhaps we were meant to be left thinking, ah, of course, you know, Jesus is here to teach us about the kingdom. That's what it's all about. He's a teacher, right? Just like those other figures in history. And certainly that's what many people over the course of human history have thought, right? He's just a teacher. He, you know, the Bible is just another book that you pick up and you put next to Sun Tzu's Art of War, the latest theory on physics, anthropology, sociology. He's just a teacher. Maybe you're sitting here and that's what you think. Jesus is wise. You can learn from him. It's some good stuff. And I want to say to you, if that's you, you're wrong. Because no matter what you say, if you say Jesus is just a teacher, that is not the Jesus that the Bible portrays. I want to make the case to you today from Matthew 8. And if you are a Christian, you say, I, I know, okay, Jesus is not just a teacher. Um, Jesus says some pretty hard things to his disciples, even those who are closest to him. And I think we need to take note and learn to obey. All right, so uh, we're going to really learn about the person of Jesus today from this text. And the way we're going to do this is we're not going to do it like we usually do, kind of like top to bottom. It's a long text. Okay, but what we're going to do is we'll draw out three points that are made all throughout the passage. Okay, and they're going to illuminate more about who Jesus is. So firstly, we're going to see how Jesus has divine authority. Secondly, we're going to see how Jesus provokes a response and finally, we'll see how Jesus prizes faith. Okay, Jesus has divine authority, which provokes a response. And finally, we see how Jesus, above all things, prizes faith. So let's look at how Jesus has divine authority. Now, at the end of Matthew 7, right, Jesus finishes his teaching, and we read that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So already Matthew begins to separate Jesus from the intellectual figures that I acknowledge of the day, right? He's not just one of them. There's something different about him. There's a power about him. But that's not enough. Definitely not enough for Matthew. Because what is the one thing that is most glaring and immediately obvious in these 34 verses, right? What keeps happening Miracles, they're everywhere, right? It's, it's in your face. He heals, he commands winds and waves, and he casts out demons. So firstly, this alone should settle any doubt. Uh, put it this way, uh, I don't know about you, 
but none of my university lecturers, no matter how smart they were, ever tried to shout very intelligently to calm down a storm. Just never saw that before. Don't know if maybe yours tried, right? So, you know, if you're still saying, oh, Jesus is just a teacher, uh, I don't know, maybe you're holding a different Bible, someone took out some pages, um, but this teacher seems to be able to do some pretty amazing miracles. So what we have to ask is, if Jesus is not just a teacher, who is he? I think the only reasonable conclusion we can make is that Jesus has divine power. And Matthew does, in fact, tell us. So let's look at what, in what way Jesus is divine, how Matthew communicates this to us. So look with me at verse 20. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now on one hand, this is a reference to Jesus' true humanity, the Son of Man. But it's also a title that's used in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7 to refer to the future coming of this great ruler, a divine figure. So I'll read for us from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and, in, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, I'm that son of man. No ordinary teacher. But then look in verse 29. Right, the demons who are in fear of Jesus, what do they call him? They call him the Son of God. Right? This does not mean that Jesus is a son, necessarily in the same way that I am the son of my father. Rather, Jesus is, in fact, to summarize, claiming to be of the same nature as God. So, so in John chapter 5, for example, John tells us that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Uh, and the reason that's given is that Jesus claimed to be God's son, and therefore, John says, co-equal with God, which in their eyes is blasphemy. Jesus' claim to be the son of God was serious enough that it was blasphemy, and the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. He was claiming to be co-equal with God. Now, we don't have time to go deeper into John chapter 5, um, but as I was reading it in preparation, I would just recommend, like, go home, uh, study John chapter 5 in detail. Uh, there's just so much to learn about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Really enlightening. So Jesus claims the title Son of Man, and even the demons acknowledge He is the Son of God. Matthew writes this to begin to reveal more about who Jesus is. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. But now let's look, look more closely at power. We've determined his identity, his divinity. But what about his power? What does that say about him? Uh, and we'll learn three things. Firstly, Jesus displays his authority over disease. All right, so uh, verse 3, Jesus touches the leper. Uh, by the way, the most surefire way to get leprosy is to touch a leper. But Jesus touches the leper, doesn't get leprosy, and heals the leper. Verse 13, 
Jesus heals the centurion's servant without even being with him. Verse 15, Jesus heals mother-in-law so completely, she immediately begins to serve them. And then, oh, by the way, he just healed everyone else in the evening as well. So think with me for a moment. What is disease? Disease is essentially disorder or deterioration within a person's body. In one sense, we are all deteriorating, right? We are all coming apart. Some of us, maybe if you're sick a little bit quicker, uh, some of us, you, you think you're well, but really you're headed for the same direction, right? Uh, it's where our, eventually, death is where our body ceases to function, right? Uh, the biological process that keep us alive stop. And we're all headed there, minute by minute. Sorry, this is a bit macabre. Maybe in Asian culture, you're like, oh, you know, don't talk about death. Hey, true or not? Eventually, Mati, right? Let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. Disease simply accelerates that process. Some diseases quicker, some slower. But Jesus shows us that he is above disease. He has authority over disease. But it's not just that. He's not just this healer who has power because like we, we said a few weeks ago, lots of people have power and authority. It doesn't mean you need to choose to use your authority, right? We've just come to the new year. Maybe your boss hasn't given you a pay raise. He certainly had the authority to give you a pay raise, but he didn't. Or maybe she didn't. Just because you have authority doesn't mean you need to use it. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus has authority, and he exercises his authority. You see, Jesus is the king, like we said. Jesus is the teacher, this great teacher with lots of wisdom, but Jesus is also our compassionate healer. You see, in Jesus, we realize that God is not content to stay far away and pass judgment, and God is not content even to be incarnate and to give nuggets of wisdom on a mountain and say, all right, you all go home now. Uh, that's the end of the lesson. Come back tomorrow for part two. No, in Jesus, God shows that he's willing to come as close as he possibly can to heal our diseases and our pain. Of all the accusations that someone can bring against Jesus, the one thing that is unquestionably false is to say that Jesus does not care. A lot of people in this world say, you know, how can Jesus really be God? You know, how can God care since there's so much suffering in the world? Have you read the Gospels? If this is not a picture of care, I don't know what is. Jesus has authority over disease and he uses it to heal. But secondly, Jesus displays that he has authority over nature and the physical world. Okay, so in verses 23 to 26, once the disciples wake Jesus up, I mean, who wouldn't be sleeping in a violent storm, right? He commands the winds and waves to be still, and they were still immediately. Uh, one preacher notes that if it was simply the winds that stopped, uh, you could still question, maybe it was a coincidence, right? Winds come and go. But Matthew makes it clear that it wasn't just the winds that ceased instantly, but the waves as well. Let me tell you, a raging sea that goes calm instantly is extraordinary. Port Dixon is not, doesn't have the most violent shore, 
but you will not see waves suddenly die and you will not see a suddenly completely calm sea. This is a violent storm that goes calm instantly. Who on earth could have power and authority? And I meant that literally, who on earth could have power and authority like this? The ESV translates the disciples' question in verse 27 as, what sort of man is this? But a more accurate translation would simply be, who is this? It's almost like they're beginning to realize that they're standing not just before a man, but in the presence of someone divine. Uh, think back to Genesis 1, we find that God spoke to divide the land and the sea. Think back to Exodus 14, where through Moses, God drove the sea apart that the nation of Israel could be delivered from Egypt and a charging army. Here in Matthew, we see the same authority manifested in Jesus. He speaks and nature, the winds and the seas obey him at an instant. Same authority. Jesus has authority over nature and our physical world. But Jesus also displays authority over the spiritual realm. Uh, in today's age, uh, we don't talk very much about the spiritual realm and demons or evil spirits. Or at best, uh, you see on a movie poster, Toyol. Uh, it's the stuff you joke about in passing at a mama. You say, eh, percaya Toyol lah. Takut jangan takut Jalan balik nanti, right? We say that, oh, don't, you know, it's not really a thing, but the Bible is not shy to mention demons and evil spirits. And that's exactly what we have in verses 28 to 34. You have two demon-possessed men, and the demons are terrified of Jesus. And they basically say, at least let us have the pigs, please. And these are two men who are demon-possessed to the point where nobody could pass through the area. And the demons say, just let us have the pigs. That's terror. You know, Paul in Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That is, we don't wrestle, we're not struggling in this world simply against the physical things that we can see, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, spiritual evil can manifest itself in the physical. And that's why Paul has to caution the Ephesians not to mistake physical manifestation as the end of the problem. That's why the problem exists. That's why the misunderstanding exists because they look at the physical and say, oh, Purely pragmatic, let's just solve the physical problem. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There is a realm beyond the realm which you can see, and that's what you struggle against. And Paul in Colossians 1.13 again uses the language of darkness to say that we too, if there's a realm of darkness, we too used to be under the control of this kingdom of darkness. And yet, Paul says, in Jesus we are delivered out from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Why this language of darkness? Why is it described as a, as a kingdom of darkness? You see, demon possession is basically the most stark manifestation of the kingdom of darkness. Yeah, think about it for a second. The two demon-possessed men in this passage have lost all sense of reason 
they are no longer capable of interpreting what they see around them and responding rightly or rationally. They are violent, senseless, and for all intents and purposes, they are completely blind to the world around them. That is a picture of what it means. It is a picture taken to the maximum of what it means to be in the kingdom of darkness. And you think about it for a moment, while you and I might not be demon-possessed, at least I hope not, if you are, I don't know, will you even realize, right? Um, isn't this exactly what we imitate when we sin? When we sin, are we not acting like people in darkness? Right? We know what God's law is. We know the path that leads to life. We know what the right thing to do is. And yet, we live and act contrary to that. Instead of walking towards life, we walk towards death. Isn't that senseless and kind of dumb? Is that not essentially what it means to be blind in darkness? See, left on our own, we would never know better. And yet here, Jesus shows himself as one who can light up the darkness, even for people demon-possessed, completely in the dark, senseless and violent. So Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is truly God. He has authority over disease, over nature, and over the spiritual realm. It is unquestionable. But miracles like these don't go unnoticed, right? People notice and they're attracted. Well, what will Jesus do? As people come to him, let's see how Jesus provokes a response in point two. So look at verse 18. By the time verse 18 comes, it's clear that more people have gathered around. Okay, everyone wants some of Jesus. I mean, here's a guy who can heal at just a touch without even being present in the room with a sick person, you know, who wouldn't want a friend like Jesus, right? It's like immediate e-medical on demand. I don't know, like, you know, it's pretty incredible. So everyone wants a piece of Jesus. And so Jesus, seeing that more people have gathered, decides, hey, let's go over to the other side of the sea. And it's almost like he wants to see who's really following him, right? Let's, let me just cross a sea and let's see. No pun intended, right? And so two candidates come up to him right, to follow him, and the first is a scribe, okay, he's a religious leader, and we can tell because Matthew then talks about the second person as another disciple, so it seems like this scribe has already been following Jesus around, and he readily commits, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, wow, how, how commendable, very commendable, Jesus must be pleased, and Jesus responds, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Jesus is posing a question in return to this scribe. Have you really thought about what it means to follow me? Have you really thought about what it means to follow me? Because there is a cost to following Jesus, and you must count the cost, Jesus says. Perhaps the man was attracted to Jesus' miracles. And perhaps one thing to learn here is that 
being a Christian is not about some generic spiritual enthusiasm. Or put another way, Christianity and Jesus is not the answer to a generic spiritual need for spirituality that you have. It's not just about hype or enthusiasm. There is real cost. What about the second candidate? Another of Jesus' disciples come up to him, evidently wanting to follow Jesus too. And he says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Reasonable request, right? But a bit of cultural background is in order here. Okay, so Jewish customs dictate that, dictated that burials, okay, when someone dies, burials happen within 24 hours. So the fact that the disciple is here and talking to Jesus and not going to bury his supposedly dead father probably means that his father isn't dead. You know, at worst, maybe his father is unwell or he's getting old, but there's really no way to tell when his father's going to die. So what this disciple is actually asking is to stay for as long as it takes for his father to die, again, a bit macabre, and then to come and follow Jesus. Jesus, can I put you on hold for a while? I really like what you have to offer. It's really cool, the miracles and everything. You'll be such a great friend, and you're wise too, I can learn so much about you, but you know, just my dad, he's getting old. Can I just wait a couple of years? Then I'll come. Is that you? Jesus is not saying. Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Now, Jesus is not saying that you should abandon all responsibility to your parents. Okay, please, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is that following him is a single most important and immediate decision you need to make. When Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead, he's saying that those who place the concerns of this world, again, what we see in the physical, above following Jesus are by definition dead. So if you're saying, you know, Jesus, I, I like what you have to offer, but really, could, can I just put you on hold? You are dead. That is the definition that Jesus gives. And we aren't told how the scribe and disciple respond, but maybe that's part of the point. Maybe the text is left open-ended in this way so that we can ask the same questions. Jesus warrants your immediate attention. Yes, he teaches powerfully. Yes, he does miracles. Yes, he's compassionate. And you need to follow him. But have you considered, have you even started following him? Is he attractive enough for you? Have you considered what it might cost you? Or, in the case of the disciple, do the concerns of this world seem to be just a bit more pressing? Maybe for some of us, just a bit more appealing? Maybe we better think about that. Maybe you're sitting here and you can think of tangible ways that being a Christian is costing you something. So I'm going to stop talking to you guys for a second. Those of you who are like, I know that my faith is costing me something. But I suspect that this isn't resonating 
with some of us. Maybe for some of us, you can't quite think of what following Jesus is costing you right now in your life. That's a good thing to reflect upon. Do you feel like following Jesus in your life right now isn't actually costing you anything? Because if Jesus says that following Him fundamentally means a costly life and our faith doesn't seem to cost us anything, then we better think about it seriously. Maybe as a church, we need to wake up. And I say this as someone who's been wrestling with this myself. I've been asking myself, what does my faith cost me? If my life has no discomfort, no cost, no pain whatsoever, then I cannot pretend to be a healthy disciple who has considered the cost and is genuinely following Jesus in obedience as the primary, most important, ultimate figure in my life. If my faith costs me nothing, then I better think again. If your faith costs you nothing, then you better think again. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but we need to examine our lives seriously and honestly. Maybe some conversations need to be had. Maybe you need to ask someone else about how they think you're living. If you're provoked right now, maybe you feel a bit of fear, you're uncertain, maybe you feel uncomfortable, you're dead still or you're fidgeting, it's okay. If Jesus is the God of all power and authority who can heal with just a word, who commands winds and waves, terrifies demons, then there is a right fear that we need to have. It would actually be quite appropriate. So how do we respond to this challenge, this question that is left open by Matthew to us? How do we please Jesus as people who follow him, his disciples, is our posture to say, I know, let's, we're still in New Year's mood, right? Let's write up a list of things we should do, turn them into New Year resolutions, set daily reminders to do all of them every hour if you like, and make sure they're extra painful and costly. Ah, you feel a lot better, right? Stop. What we should ask is, what really pleases Jesus because that list that you want to do will make you feel a whole lot better doesn't actually please Jesus because listen cost cost is not what qualifies us as a disciples as a as disciples but cost is a consequence of discipleship let me say that again cost is not what qualifies us as disciples but cost is a consequence of discipleship so what we need to do is we need to first focus on what the root of discipleship is and assuredly, as we walk in discipleship, that is right, costs will follow. If we focus on the root, what does it look like to be a disciple who is following Jesus and costs will come? Don't worry about the cost. I mean, worry, re-examine, but focus on what's most important first and you'll find that cost comes along the way. So as you're going to see in point three, the answer is not to manufacture pain in our lives and then say, 
Now I'm a Christian. Our response should be to come back to the root. What really qualifies us as disciples? Let's look at how Jesus prizes faith. Now, look at verse 3. Jesus is happy to heal the leper. He sends him off to get uh, the healing confirmed by the priest. Uh, that's the practice. That's what was done. But perhaps most significantly, Jesus is incredibly pleased at who? At the centurion's response in verse 8. You know, Jesus already said, okay, you know, what's your need? Okay, I'll, I'll come and heal your servant. And yet the centurion seems to go beyond that. He says, he, he displays humility and extraordinary faith. First he says in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is a centurion who could have, could, been un, the, could have had command of dozens of Roman soldiers. He was a figure of authority. He was a somebody. And here he is saying, I am not worthy to have you step into my house. And then he goes on and says, but you know, just say the word. My servant will be healed. I know. Just say the word. And he says, because I, I understand authority. I say to, my, to one soldier, he, he, he goes and does it. I say to my servant, he does it. I, I, I get authority. You have authority beyond me. Just say the word. That is faith. And Jesus responds, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith, in verse 10. And later he says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed, in verse 13. You know, there are not many places in the Gospels where we find Jesus reacting this way. So let's ask the question, what is the difference between the leper and the centurion and the scribe and the disciple? What's the difference? Jesus prizes faith. You see, the leper and centurion came in faith. Coming in faith is coming in need. They came recognizing that they needed Jesus. They came recognizing that they couldn't help themselves. There's an element of desperation. So let me just say this. If you have a need, don't be afraid to ask desperately to come to Him. And with whatever you can, pray and ask with desperation. You know, sometimes we overcomplicate things. Um, I just need to be a bit careful here. We should praise God just for who He is. We shouldn't treat Him like a Santa Claus or a genie. But He does invite us to come to Him in need. That is literally what we see in this text. So when was the last time that you reflected on the fact that Jesus is compassionate? Jesus is infinitely more compassionate than the best mother or father on this earth. Why wouldn't you come to him in prayer and in times of need? You know, James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Right? This isn't a promise that you get everything you ask for, but it's an invitation to come to a caring God who knows what you need most. Ask. Pray. The scribe and disciple didn't come with need. Right? They came with assertions and delays. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. For, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But the leper and the centurion, Lord, if you're willing, Lord, but only say the word. 
asking, pleading. Jesus prizes faith because he has all the power. He is the powerful, authoritative Lord who is compassionate and kind. Only people who recognize their weakness and their need recognize that they need Jesus. They are desperate people who come and don't trust in their own strength, have no confidence. They come to Jesus and you know what they find? They find a God who is not just able, but willing and glad to draw near in healing and compassion. Draw near to Jesus in faith. Maybe you're here today and you, you, just, you just don't really know much about Jesus. Maybe you know some facts, but he is nowhere near a personal person that you know. This is who Jesus is. You can draw near to him today, or you can say, I just want you and your wisdom. I just want to know how to live a better life. Why would you not want to draw near to a gracious and compassionate God? Draw near to Jesus in faith. And yet we've talked so much about need, haven't we? Need, need, draw near to him if I need. What exactly, what need do we draw near to Jesus with? Do we come only in faith when we get sick? Or when relationships break down? And you say, okay, give me, you know, give me the right words to say to mend this relationship. Um, those things are important. Please do pray for God's guidance on them. He does love reconciliation. As we see, he cares about those who are sick and hurting. But do we primarily, do we primarily come to Jesus because of the difficulties in our lives? The key word is primarily. We come to Him in our need, but what do we come to Him primarily for? How do we primarily relate to Jesus? Do we read this text and say, I'll come to Jesus when I need my healing. Thank you very much. I'll come to Jesus when I want some wisdom. Lecture 1, 2, 3, 4, as and when I need them. Is the Bible a guidebook for you? No. Because if you look at Isaiah 53 verse 4, well, look at verse 17 first, because Matthew notes that all the healings and casting out demons, what does he say? Was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 53. And he quotes it. He says, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And you say, wait a minute. Isn't that exa- does that sound exactly like you should come Jesus for physical healing? Well, now go to Isaiah 53 verse 4. And we read about God's promised Messiah, this Savior. And you read that it says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the reason that doesn't, it's not exactly like for like is that those two, those two words, griefs and sorrows, uh, can mean uh, something like, Sickness and pain. And so, God's promised Messiah is coming for sickness and pain. But look at the rest of the chapter 53. It talks about iniquities and sin. Matthew, by using Isaiah 53, is pointing us to a bigger picture, to a bigger reality. He is saying that the reality that all sickness, disease, and pain in this world 
are not primarily what's wrong with the world. Disease, sickness, and pain are not primarily what is wrong with this world. Uh, Isaiah 53 verses 5 to 6 go, go on. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us on him, the iniquity of us all. What is primarily wrong with this world is sin. As we look at nature around us and the world around us, it shouts to us the reality that there is one single unifying problem. The root problem of the physical manifestations is sin. And Matthew is using this Isaiah 53 reference to tell us about this reality. Maybe we can backtrack a bit, right? Remember, remember what sickness is? Uh, sickness is body falling apart, losing its functions, uh, disintegration, the body is whole, and we're slowly coming apart. Sickness accelerates the road to death. Or you can say sickness is foreign and unnatural. No one gets cancer and you say, oh, of course you get cancer. No, it's, it's not natural. Why do people cry at funerals? If it's something completely natural, why, why mourn loss and grief? Why bother? Because we know that it's unnatural. What about creation? Creation, we, we read in Genesis 1, was meant to be ordered and peaceful. We, mankind, were meant to co-rule with God. We are not God's but he gives us the authority to rule a world that is in order and at peace. And yet, when we sin, right, Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, Paul tells us that all of creation fell into disarray along with us. So rather than calm seas, we have violent waves and winds. Natural disasters remind us that we are not so great and we are not that big. We're actually quite small. And you look at animals tearing each other apart. Think about, have you ever thought about the fact that that is a picture of pain and death that sin, sin brings? The things in this world, the way that the world is, screams at us that this world is broken and it needs disordering. Demon possession is the removal of all control. Remember what we said? The what you call the dispossession of all your rational faculties and will, right? The demons drive the pigs against their senses. What do they do? They plunge themselves into the sea. Death by suicide by, by demon possession for pigs. Right? The demons turn the two men into senseless, violent people who attack anyone within range. They are a picture of being in utter darkness. And the Bible says, sin is the root cause. Sin is what we really need a savior for. You can, you, can hear, you can address all those symptoms and those physical manifestations and they're just going to keep coming because there's a root problem and the Messiah has come for that reason. So how does he deal with sin? Isaiah 53 verse 5 once again gives us a clue. He was pierced for our transgressions. The way that Jesus deals with our sin is substitutionary 
we are personally responsible for sin, every single one of us. That's why the world is the way it is. And Jesus dies in the place of sinners. Jesus does not literally become diseased, but think about how he experiences the effects of the curse that we are under. Right? As Jesus goes to the cross, already his body has been split by Roman whips. As he hangs, his blood is freely flowing out and he chokes to death as his organs begin to fail. Jesus experiences nature turned against him. He was a carpenter who worked with the things of the earth, wood. And yet he wears a crown of thorns that pierces rather than really crowns. He hangs on a cross. Things of the world that God created use against the Son of God. And as the crucifixion begins, the land is cast in utter darkness. Jesus, when we look at the cross of Christ, we see a picture of everything that is cursed and wrong with this world, and yet there he hangs to take on our sin, and Isaiah 53 says, to take on our iniquities. This is what you come to Jesus for. When we trust in Jesus' sacrifice, we are brought out from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Here's a Savior King who sympathizes with us in the ultimate way. He experiences the effects of the curse, true pain, true agony, true suffering. Are you weary of a tiresome, disease-ridden, painful, and sorrowed world? Do you want a better world? A world where disease does not exist? A world where seas are calm? Where nature is completely at peace? Where, if you can imagine it, the Bible says, a wolf could lay down with a lamb in peace. And there's no biting off or hits or tearing of skin. Where there is no darkness or evil powers to fear? Is that a world that you want? There's good news. Jesus is not just an exceedingly wise teacher, though he is wise. Jesus came to this world not simply to teach about a better world, but to bring it about. The world is in agony because we fell into sin, but Jesus came to the world to bear our sin by experiencing the agony that we brought about, to guarantee us the inheritance of a world without agony, without disease and suffering. This is what we come to Jesus for. Come to Jesus in your need, desperate for the forgiveness of your sins, admitting that you are in need, and discover that He is glad to give you the full assurance of forgiveness that He has already purchased for you at a great cost to Himself. Then come back to Him again and again and again with gladness, joy, and confidence with your needs. He hears and He cares. He is gracious and compassionate. I want to end with a verse from a song called I Cannot Tell. It goes like this, I cannot tell how silently He suffered as with His peace He graced this place of tears or how His heart upon the cross was broken, the crown of pain to three and thirty years. But this I know, He heals the brokenhearted and stays our sin and calms our lurking fear and lifts the burden from the heavy laden, for yet the Saviour, the Saviour of the world, is here. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you and we are so thankful that in your Son, we have a picture of a gracious and compassionate Saviour who has given his life up for us to guarantee us that the assurance of our salvation, that when we look at a broken world around us, we don't say there is no hope. We don't say this is it. But we can look forward to a world where things will be right. That it is not just a fantastical fantasy that we need to imagine, but it's a reality we are walking towards. And so we confess that often we don't live in right discipleship. We take you too lightly. But we come to you knowing that you are gracious and compassionate, that you grant us forgiveness of sins. Thank you that you care about the needs in this world. Uh, we worship you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.